So hello and welcome, happy Friday. Today is Friday, August the 11th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 219. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here today. We've had a lot of storms recently, and more, by the way, coming up. And uh, what's going on outside? 74.8 degrees Fahrenheit, so that's super nice for us here. Actually, that's a really good day. I'm surprised I'm even inside doing this right now. It's 23 degrees Celsius, for those of you who want to know that. The wind, pretty constant, 8 to 8.3 miles per hour, 65% relative humidity, so the humidity went down. No big surprise because we had a lot of rainstorms yesterday. It was pouring yesterday, which is actually good. I'm not complaining. How many lightning strikes in the last 24 hours? 17 of them. That's right. 17 strikes. Storms tomorrow, but guess what? If you're in the northeastern part where I am in Pennsylvania, Sunday is looking good. 73, sunny. But Saturday, you can get out of mowing, and that's okay for me. I don't mind getting out of mowing. How is the Canadian wildfire situation affecting our air quality right now? We're in the green zone. So all the rain and stuff, well, you know, knock the particulates out of the air. And uh, those fires are still going, though. Talking about fires... You know, out in Hawaii, terrible devastation there. So our thoughts are for those people who have been through those sudden fires, and there's lots of loss of life. If you don't know about that, uh, look into it. It's pretty severe. I don't know if any of you um, know people who are keeping bees in that area and uh, just wondering what went on, but of course, human life first. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description and you'll see all of the topics listed in order. You'll also see a link so you can submit your own topic for consideration for a future episode of Questions and Answers. And that's on my main website, which is thewaytobe.org. And uh, I try to limit it to 10 topics every Friday. So also yesterday I put out a video on, you know, pollen traps. So that's kind of interesting. People like to collect pollen. And that's going to tie in with my uh, very first question today. So the first question today comes from YKing333. So that's the YouTube channel. How quickly does the Blythewood fill up? Assuming you left it on for a while. So we're talking about pollen traps. One of the traps that happens to be my favorite. And by that I mean the kind of trap that you just add on the front of a hive and you can take it off. Leave it there for a couple of days, get some pollen, and then take it off and everything is restored. There are more elaborate pollen traps out there and a lot of people wondered why I didn't mention the Apame beehive and the fact that there's an integrated pollen trap in the bottom board of the Apame hive. There is, and they're great, and they're well designed, but that's for people that have Apame hives. So what uh, I included in my video yesterday was, uh, you know, Pollen traps you can put on any hive, basically on the front. In fact, they won't they won't work on Apame hives. So it's a good thing that Apame has their own pollen traps built in. Which, by the way, all of my Apame hives are in bypass mode. So it's very simple to change that. So that's why I left that out because what I was trying to do is be as inclusive as possible, and to, to talk about that. So there's a link down in the video description if you want to know uh, what that was about yesterday. So anyway, the whole idea about uh, the traps. My favorite one is a wooden, very small uh, pollen trap that goes on the landing board of a standard Langstroth 8 frame or 10 frame. So they have two different uh, pollen traps for that. 
The reason I liked it is because it's physically heavy and it'll sit right on there. Even though it has holes in it so you can screw it to the front of your beehive, it wasn't necessary. It's heavy enough and it just sits flat on the landing board and then it has a removable drawer so you're either collecting pollen when the drawer is in or you're not collecting pollen when the drawer is out. So it's really simple, really easy. But the, re the question about how quickly does it fill up well, that's, you know, that has to do with uh, the population of the hive, the weather conditions, the pollen that's uh, available in the environment, and the pollen that's coming in, and what rate is it coming in. And here's the thing. It's a wide tray, but I did notice that the bees have a tendency to favor a certain side of the entrance. So the pollen actually piles up pretty deep to one side of the removable tray, so uh, it could fill up pretty quick. I don't like to leave uh, pollen collection systems on hives for very long at all. In fact, I don't even do full days with it. So I've put it on there and uh, maybe 10 or 11 in the morning. And I notice there's a lot more pollen coming in between 11 and 1 than there is later on in the day. I don't know why that is because they're certainly gathering nectar and everything else for the rest of the afternoon. But I do see large numbers of uh, pollen collectors coming in in the mornings. So I just leave them on for a couple of hours. And then here's the other thing. I don't worry about these pollen trays filling up. And the reason for that is I don't leave the pollen out there anyway. So what I like to do is go out there, pull the tray, dump the pollen into a Ziploc baggie or some other container, take it straight into the house and put it in the freezer. We want to keep the pollen fresh. So multiple trips. It's kind of like when you have chickens, you have chicken coops, and we do, we have multiple chicken coops here. Uh, we like to collect the eggs several times through the day and uh, get them to the refrigerator. Same thing with your pollen. Keep it fresh. So treat it, you know, get there frequently and get the pollen as frequently as you can because it does not bother the bees one bit. We're just pulling the collection tray out. They're still flying in and out of their hive uninterrupted. So then the question, the next part of this question is, what about the design that purposely allows some pollen in and some gets collected. Say it's constantly harvesting 30% of the pollen collected. It feels like lightly harvesting some over a longer period is less harsh than taking 100% over a shorter period. Do you think the bees realize the pollen is being removed? Well, the bees inside the hive, they have no idea what pollen is being interrupted. Why? Because it never makes it inside the hive. So demand for pollen remains high. Because here's the other thing, bees uh, like their pollen to be fresh. So we know that their highest consumption rate is for pollen that's inside the hive that's being processed by the nurse bees and being turned into bee bread. It's fermenting, kind of peak fermentation is at 48 hours. So that's also when they're consuming that pollen. So they really don't want to bring all their pollen in at once, fill all the pollen cells, and then make them all into bee bread all at the same time. What they do is they keep a steady flow of it coming in and who is making that decision inside the hive? The storekeeper bees, the nurses that are having to develop their nutrition, nutrition, their nutrients for the bees that they are feeding. So the pollen demand goes hand in hand with how much larva they're treating, how, much lar how many larvae they're having to feed, right? So if the larvae is smaller numbers, then their demand for pollen is lower. If they have more larvae, then their demand for pollen is higher. So they, if they're not getting enough of it, more foragers will be sent out to collect more pollen and come back. So if you're harvesting pollen at the entrance with a you know, 
with the plastic one that we talked about here too, which by the way, I was not a huge fan of. And it says they purposely designed it to allow pollen through. I don't know if they purposely designed it to do that. It just kind of happens. So it was 50%. That's a very loose 50% because it's just observation and on different hives. So the plastic one, so we could see a lot of bees getting right through the pollen trap portion. Uh, with the pollen on their legs, therefore they were coming through and still providing whatever the bees needed inside the hive. And once the bees inside the hive have what they need, pollen demand goes down, which may explain why later on in the day, the foragers are out more after nectar now and less involved with pollen collection. So, and then the following day, they may pick up again. So, but as far as that, uh, one of the comments I made was that the plastic one that allows more of the bees to get through, plus more bees can get in through the sides. They have a drone escape built into the side of it. I'm going to encourage you to watch the video because I explained all of that and you get to see it. So it'll be embedded in your mind a little better. But uh, I definitely preferred the wooden version for a lot of reasons. But uh, yeah, less of an impact because you're not collecting all the pollen at once. And it would be potentially a severe impact on the hive if you left a pollen trap on all the time for an extended period, particularly when right now the bees are really ramping up. This is also why I only put pollen traps on the strongest colonies, the most productive colonies. And maybe in fact, if you needed to hold those colonies back a little bit, if they're getting too big, you could actually cut back on their pollen. I don't know. It's just a thought that crossed my mind. But you can look at that video and uh, see what's going on there. But as far as if you fill it all the way, uh, frequent emptying of those pollen trays was what I, what I would recommend. So moving on to question number two, which comes from Sarah uh, from Angus, Scotland. Holy cow. Anyway, I'm interested in building a horizontal hive such as you use. As I get older, the boxes keep getting heavier. However, I love the flow frames. Is there any reason I couldn't design the main hive box to accommodate some flow frames? Then I could remove them for harvesting, perhaps making a dedicated frame holder. Just a thought. Well, that's actually something that somebody here in the United States has been doing. Horizontalbees.com. Shout out for today. Horizontalbees.com. And that's Ricky Rourke, and he custom builds horizontal hives. He primarily builds horizontal hives, and he's done several that have those flow frames built into them. So it has a dedicated compartment within the long run of a horizontal hive, and they have to be cut differently because of the flow frames not fitting a standard Langstroth frame shoulder. The height above them is different, and it's kind of unique. So what I'm going to do for those who are curious about that, it could work. I'm not saying it wouldn't. You could try it. But uh, I'm going to put a link down in the video description associated with question number two that will show you the exact specifications of a flow frame so that you'll understand how those rabbit joints need to be cut, what kind of jig needs to be made, because these are pretty deep and the flow supers are pretty unique. Uh, but the flow company, which is uh, honeyflow.com, they're pretty good at uh, sharing, of course, their technical drawings and illustrations so that you could build your own flow supers, for example, and just buy the frames. So when you do that, that information is in there so that you could also build a segment of your horizontal hive. 
and uh, it is different. So it's going to be a unique build. And uh, as I mentioned before, Ricky Rourke at uh, HorizontalBees.com has built them. And for those of you who are in the United States, I highly recommend you check out that website. Uh, he's happy to accommodate any uh, horizontal hive design. In fact, he built my ultimate observation hive for me. So they get my vote all the way. So moving on to question number three. This comes from... Uh, Trish Westberg, that's the YouTube channel name, in the opening sequences, are, and so this would have been a couple of weeks ago, in fact, in the opening sequences, are your chickens behind your way to bee building? Yeah, they're everywhere. They're behind it, they're under it, they're in front of it. My chickens are free-ranging chickens, and they go right over and around my electric fence and everything else. So the next part of this question is, do you put robbing screens on your hives to prevent robbing this time of year as a practice, even if there are not any hives around my two hives, but there are wasps present. So that's it. You know, the yellow jackets are already ramping up. I don't like them one bit. But I will talk about what I do. I'm just going to show you. I know I've covered this before, but it is time of year. And by showing these now, we'll get people thinking about having robbing screens available. The one on top here is made by Cirocell, which is a company out of New Zealand. And this one, of course, most people in the United States have seen these. They're by B-Smart Designs, and those are robbing screens. Now, here's the thing. Do I put them on ahead of time? Just knowing, thinking my bees are going to be pinged by robbing bees? No, I don't. So the reason for that is, through the years I've learned, uh, that once the nectar flow starts to slow down and the pressure from robbing increases, reducing your entrances will stop them from getting started. So by that I mean there are foraging honeybees that are out there and there are scouts that are out there following every honey scent that they can. They inspect landing boards. They land on landing boards and they wait to see if they're repelled right away and most of them are. It's the weaker colonies and here's the other kicker. The colonies that do not have queens in them. So when a colony becomes queenless for some reason they no longer feel like defending their resources. So queenless colonies tend to get robbed. And that's been kind of the history. I did a video a few years back that showed a pretty dramatic attack on a hive and a robbing frenzy. And sure enough, I find out they're queenless. So once we stopped the robbing, and I did it with one of these, I showed a bunch of different tactics to really show you how intense it gets. Once some of those scouts or foragers makes it past the landing board, makes it through the entrance, gets the honey that's stored inside and gets away and back to their parent colony, wherever that happens to be, they come back in huge numbers. And once something like that starts, it's very quick that the guard bees are defended or defeated on the landing board and uh, you'll see bees stinging each other to death in the grass in front of the hive. Uh, so... If you suspect that you have a colony that's going to be weak, rather than putting a robbing screen on it as a precautionary measure, although I'm not saying you can't do it, it's just not necessary if you put a tiny entrance on ahead of time, and then you might say, well, what's tiny? Well, three-eighths of an inch high by two to three inches wide is more than enough, even for a fully loaded colony of bees. So... But we're not at risk of that right now. We're just coming out of a semi-dearth period that we had here 
brought on by weather, lack of rain, stuff like that. But now they're making up for it. And by the way, the goldenrod that we have outside right now that's just getting started is heavy with nectar. We're going to talk about plants for your bees a little later on today. But uh, And the reason that you know that it's heavy with nectar is by how much time a foraging honeybee spends on each bloom. And if they're there on one single goldenrod top that has multiple blooms on it, that bee was on there for a full minute. So that lets you know that's really loaded. And some people that are more tactile in their experience with evaluating the environment, they just tear off the tops of goldenrod and they chew it and they go, hmm, yep, that's loaded with nectar. I like to have uh, kids eat dandelions and things like that. And you really can when it's really loaded, you taste the nectar in it. It tastes somewhat sweet. Where other times you can chew it and it's dry as a bone. So there is something to that too. While you're out in the environment, giving your tours of your property or checking things out, I don't recommend you do it in other people's yards, but you can take the blossoms off and chew them. Chew right down on the nectaries in there and see how much there is. In fact, do that different times during the day. What a great way to teach kids about maybe in the morning it's sweeter or maybe it's more watery and therefore leaned out. And then later on in the day, it's super sweet and concentrated because the nectar quality is not the same throughout the day. But um, so at the end of this is when you're going to have a lot of robbing. So robbing screens like this, I recommend all backyard beekeepers have these in your shed as an emergency. And they work in an emergency situation because they have pins on the top. Pull them out, stick the pins in, open up the top for your bees. And uh, look what else, by the way, that was designed into this. Notice how this pattern of holes arches up in the front. But then look where it's solid here and there's no holes. That's because this is where the entrance is. Robbers are following the smell of the honey in the hive. So the robbers are going to be trying to get through these little holes. They're smelling everything. And the designer of this had the foresight to block this portion so the robbers are not following that scent up the side and then getting in here. They're staying down here and they're trying to get underneath the entrance here while the resident bees are coming out through the top. And then you can rotate them. Close this side today. Overnight, change it. Open this side tomorrow. And then the resident bees stay ahead of all the other robbers that are going to come back. You can tell when your hive is being pinged by robbers. They're not just checking the entrance. You know they don't live there. They're checking the sides. They're checking the joints. They're checking the cover. They're all over it. They're behind it. They're under it. They're everywhere they should not be. And uh, that's how you know that colony is under pressure. So then you could put one of these in if you wanted to as a precaution. What you don't want to happen is to get a colony started robbing. Stopping that train is not easy. So I hope you know, that might be a little sketchy answer, but for my beehives, I don't put robbing screens on. I keep entrances small. So that helps. Question number four. Your goal is to take out the scouts. Don't let them get back with information. Uh, question number four is from Dustin from San Antonio, Texas. Is that where the Alamo is? Pee Wee Herman just passed away and we just watched Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I think he was looking for his bicycle in the basement of the Alamo, only to discover there is no basement in the Alamo. Anyway, moving on. Hello, Fred here in Central Texas. We've started our summer dearth and have begun feeding. I've been wondering if someone is open feeding in the vicinity 
do you think would help suppress robbing behavior or stimulate it? Look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. So since we're talking about robbing, open feeding. And I'm glad we're talking about that because I had some emails from other people who had potentially treated their colonies with um, miticides that are not approved for treatment with the honey supers on. Yet after winter came through, some of the honey supers were still remaining, still capped, and they had been on during this treatment, so they're supposed to be fed back to the bees. One of the options that a lot of people use when it comes time to getting rid of uh, honey that they're not going to extract for themselves, because some treatments, by the way, make the honey not only not suitable for you or the bees, uh, you can't sell it, bottle it, or use it anywhere else. So putting it out in a feeding station, you're actually spreading treatments that a lot of people don't want in their hives. So these are things to think about when we talk about robbing stations or feeding stations. Do they relieve the stress of robbers on your hives? Yes, I think they do. And the reason for that is uh, those would-be robbers that are scouting the countryside feverishly looking for resources can be drawn to a feeding station. Now, this is where I'm really trying to appeal to backyard beekeepers. Um, you should know your beekeeping neighbors because if they still have their honey supers on or they still have not harvested their honey yet, uh, if you're out there putting feeds and resources out there for the bees that are not honey, so if you're going to put out your syrups and stuff or you're going to get rid of stuff that time of year, uh, thinking that you're fortifying your bees for wintertime, you are potentially feeding neighbors' hives. This is why I stopped open feeding. Uh, one of the reasons I stopped open feeding is because the bees that were benefiting from my open feed were not mine. How did I know that? Because I took powdered sugar... And I dumped it on the bees that were at the robbing station, and I watched them fly away. A very tiny percentage of those were headed to my own apiary, which was only about 150 feet away. Uh, the one, they were flying northeast of me and up and over the trees, so I know who lives over there. So I was feeding their bees, and I don't want to do that for free. So, uh, be careful when you're feeding bees, and know what your neighbors are doing. And it's safe to do it after the dearth, when you're not putting your honey supers on. And by safety, I mean it's ethical. You don't want a bunch of sugar syrup in your hives because if you're harvesting that, then you're selling honey that's produced from sugar syrup. Some people have no problem with that whatsoever. I personally do. So I want you to be courteous in that way. So the other thing is it's not the time to unload questionable frames of honey. So those that you feel have been tainted or potentially tainted by treatments that are not approved with your uh, honey supers on, then please don't put that out for other bees to feed on and potentially take to an unsuspecting beekeeper's apiary. So what's my solution for that? My solution is if you're going to use a miticide, if you're going to treat your colonies, always please pick miticides that are approved with honey supers on that are approved for you to take honey afterwards and have it still be suitable for human consumption. Also still suitable for consumption by your bees, a non-residue material that doesn't build up in the honeycomb and things like that. The reason I say that is you're failing safe. You're absolutely safe. That treatment, now if you put frames of honey out at the end of the year to clean up a hive or whatever you're doing, and you want to put that at your robbing station, let them clean all the cells and things like that, which is what I do, and I don't mind, uh, because they're cleaning up the cells for me, and it is taking, as mentioned in this question, 
robbing pressure away from the apiary. So that's the other part of it. Only use treatments that are approved for consumption that are only approved with your Honey Supers on. The other part of that is make sure that uh, you're done with your Honey Supers and that this is at the end when you're trying to get stuff back. But if it's honey that you're feeding, what do you care if that cycles back to your own bees? So that's good too. Uh, so it is a standard cleanup to do. Um, and it does suppress robbing. And the other part of that I want to say is I do see some videos on YouTube. Surprise, surprise. Where people just pull the frames out and lay them right on top of the cover of the hive that they pull them out of for cleanup. So I'm going to suggest to the backyard beekeeper, please do not let bees rob honey from frames on top of your hive, leaning against the hive, or somewhere that's right in your apiary. The reason for that is you're going to see a feeding frenzy on those frames. And bees that go after honey that are in a period of dearth, they lose their cookies completely and they go after everything and they start fighting over those resources. The second that stuff is gone, those scouts are returning, those foragers are returning, and in the absence of now what you had out for feed, they're going to attack the colony nearest to where it was located. And they start to expand that circle out and they go after everything. Our bees went after, my wife has Baltimore Oriole feeders out and she puts grape jelly in them. There is not a Baltimore Oriole around that could land on any of those feeders. This was a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was nothing but bees, wasps, and hornets. Nothing. There's no bird that could feed on that grape jelly. And that's because we were in a period of dearth. Once they find a feeding station, they're going to mob it. And not only that, they're going to continue to return to that. Anytime there's any resource there, they're just going to go nuts. So they're going to go all over the place. And that feeder was on our back deck, which means you couldn't go out in the back deck without being buzzed by bees. So think about where your robbing station is going to be. Try to make that consistent, by the way. Use the same place over and over and that way you'll see that the bees check it daily, multiple times a day, just in case some more sugary resources just magically show up there. So question number five, moving on, comes from Chris from Roseburg, Oregon. I live in southwest Oregon and we have very few fall nectar sources. I have planted a 50-foot row of goldenrod very near my beehives. This is the second season for the goldenrod and it has really filled in. So despite this, the bees have ignored the goldenrod. I do have many other flowers in the yard and the bees seem to prefer the mint and herbs that are blooming. Any idea why my bees are ignoring the goldenrod and do you have any other plants you would suggest I plant to get fall nectar source? Asters, question mark. Okay. There are a lot of reasons why the bees don't go to certain plants certain times of the year, even though you've provided them. And this is a very common question that backyard gardeners and people who don't keep bees but want to see them in their garden. I like those people, by the way, because they're planting being mindful of pollinators and what they might need. And so when they're putting that out there, and especially when they're asking beekeepers, what can I plant? So then somebody will think they planted a mass of flowers, like they'll do a hundred blossoms. What they don't realize is honeybees are economists. So honeybees, when their scouts are out, 
Scouts come back and they don't just report the location of a nectar or pollen source that they found. They report on the amount or the quality. So this affects the amount of waggle dances that they do. The information in the waggle dance doesn't change. What does change is the number of cycles that they do. So they keep doing the same waggle dance over and over and over and over. Number one, if there's great quality there. Number two, if there's a vast quantity there. So when you're planting a couple of hundred flowers, let's just be honest, that's not on the bees radar. And here's one of the things that, uh, unless they're starving and you've got a lot of bees around. So this is one of the things that I think about, you know, we don't mow most of our property which is as it should be. I don't want to mow in the first place, but uh, so we have thousands of plants, obviously, and we have hundreds of trees. And uh, so here's the thing. When I look at something like goldenrod, I have to think about it. Would I plant goldenrod? Here I am mowing around goldenrod and I mow around our big milkweed plots. And by big, you know, it's 700 feet long. It's 60 feet wide. You know what I mean? It's a patch but it's loaded with honeybees. You hear them before you see them. So that way you know they're really onto it. Now, if I only had 20 or 30 milkweed plants, then would the bees pay much attention to that? They'd probably be on something else that's more abundant. And the reason for that is, this is why sometimes you'll see bumblebees or native pollinators on a small plot of flowers, and you won't see the honeybees. And that's because honeybees practice something called floral constancy. So when honeybees are going out and they're on the white clover, that bee and the other foragers that are with it, and they do foraging groups, by the way. That's why you'll see three or four or 20 or 30 show up together, and then they all kind of leave together. But they're, those that are foraging on white clover, for example, are going to exclusively visit white clover blossoms. And there's also some question as to whether or not those bees once they are locked into a certain variety of plant or a certain species of plant. And when that plant's exhausted, they may actually no longer forage for plants. So it becomes clover or nothing, goldenrod or nothing, milkweeds or nothing. So when they're on the milkweeds, they only go to other milkweeds and they go back when they're done. So if you're not providing enough of one floral source for those bees, the honeybees, then they're going to visit those that are more abundant, the ones that has hundreds of thousands of blossoms, rather than just, you know, the plot that you've set up. Even though it's the right plant, it's not the right quantity. Now, the bumblebees and other foragers like that, there are some native bee species that are specialists. In other words, they emerge from their cocoons just in time for these blossoms, and then they feed on those blossoms, they make their own cocoons, they lay their own eggs, and then they go, into dormancy for the rest of the year. But there are bumblebees, for example, you'll see them going from flower to flower to flower and they mix up the species quite a bit. So they're, they're much more diverse in their foraging habits. That's why you see them in your gardens where you might only have 50 of a certain plant type. But I wanna give you a guide. I've mentioned this before, but I'm gonna mention it again. And this is uh, Plants for Pollinators. The title is 100 Plants to feed the bees, provide a healthy habitat to help pollinators thrive. And it's from the Xerxes Society, which is a society that I happen to support. This is a very handy book. They talk about, uh, in the stories here, I'm gonna just go to the page. 
which is going to explain my own thoughts on this. This is my favorite one in the whole book, where I live. That's the other thing. It covers the area where you live. It's got a map of the United States. So look here, unless you're in the southeastern part of the United States, this plant will grow. What's the name of the plant? You might be wondering if you're listening as a podcast on Podbean. Uh, this is anise or anise. I don't know how people want to say it. Hyssop, giant hyssop, agastache subspecies. So anyway, this is a plant that I planted uh, inside during the winter time, which is a great thing to do. Breaks up the winter. What's better than to walk into a porch inside in wintertime and have hundreds of plants growing? It's cool. It gives you something to look forward to. They change all the time. And that last year was the first time I did that. Transplanted them all outside. They're all doing fantastic. I have huge regrets. What do you think they are? I regret that I am keeping goldenrod, asters, and things like that on my property. And you might be thinking, what? Those are good for the bees. What are you thinking? Well, what I'm thinking is, right across the road from my property, there are hundreds of acres of goldenrod and asters and all these volunteer wild native plants that are out there. So why would I be using my acreage to plant those when those are already out there? So instead, this is what I'm doing. I'm keeping my milkweeds because I like them. But I'm going to grow exponentially. I'm going to get into the asters. Not asters. What am I talking about? I'm going to get into the hyssop. I'm going to grow hyssop everywhere. Because this, I planted some mid-season last year. That stuff is three or four feet tall. The honeybees are all over it. And that stuff, if I had acres of that, that would translate into hundreds of pounds of nectar. And here's the part. Part of the question here is, it's this time of year. You know, near the end of the year, the plants thin out, the forage thins out, the nectar thins out, right? So planting things like hyssop that will carry you right into October, late October. The bees are on it because it becomes the only player in the game when it comes to nectar resources at the end of the year. So I do have other plants that do that. So I'll mention those, Maximilian sunflowers. They get visited by bees, but let me tell you what, not on the level that hyssop does. So you, you can look down to the video description. I'll give you the source of where I got the hyssop. I also recommend that you go to your local garden centers. This is what I did last year. I went at the end of the year uh, because they're trying to get rid of all their stuff. And you know what these garden centers do? I found this out. At the end of the year, when they have all these potted plants out there that they're not going to take care of through winter because they start seedlings and they go through a whole cycle uh, and then they sell them the following year, they compost those things. Here's a plant that you would have to pay $15 for in a pot, you know, big ones. And if it doesn't sell, it ends up in a compost pile behind your garden center. Potentially, I'm not saying all garden centers do it, but they're profit-oriented and they're going to grow. Inside, they have acres of seedlings starting. So they prepare for the following year and they get rid of that stuff. So here's what you do. You make friends with those people. Make friends with the workers there. Find out when they're getting rid of stuff and they go and take all their cast-offs and stick them. You can plant them in your property at the end of the year. They go dormant through winter and they wake up and they bloom the following spring. That's what mine did. So I took advantage of sales at the end of the year. I bought every hyssop plant they had. All of them. 
Yep, I'll take that. What are those over there? Is that his? I'll take those. How about, is that his? I'll take those over there too. Plant them all. I think my wife was skeptical. I don't think she wanted me to do it, but now she wants that particular garden to be doubled in size. I say, hooey on that. Let's quadruple it. Let's not think small. Let's have acres of hyssop. Let's do it. That's my plan. Get that book. Find out what grows where you are. And because here's the other thing. I know I'm still on my soapbox here. It talks about, now they say stuff in here that's pretty funny to me, but uh, it says that 19th century beekeeper accounts claimed that a single acre could provide ample forage for 100 colonies. I think that's wild speculation. 100 colonies? But it's better than what's there now. Hyssop, I guarantee you, is going to outperform all of your asters. It's going to outperform all of your goldenrod and stuff. And I'm not saying get rid of it. I'm going to because I'm going to mow it down. I'm going to plant hyssop because hyssop seeds are tiny. That's the other thing. I'm harvesting my own seeds. That's right because I know which ones I like and I know at what point we need to harvest them. Oh, look what I have right in front of me. Because I know somebody's going to ask, where do you get your seeds? I go to Eden Brothers. And of course they don't pay me anything. They don't give you anything for free either. But there's millions, I'm just guessing, thousands of seeds in here. And this was for the 2023 planting year. Uh, the germination percentage on these is in the 90s. This stuff is great. Okay, enough of that. And some people, so he mentioned here, Chris did, that, uh, let's see, the goldenrod, flowers in the yard, the mint and herbs are blooming. Okay, so mint. It's in the mint family, I believe, because it's got those square stems. So when you feel the stems on the plants, that's right. They're also all over the catnip this year, too. Although catnip, I don't think there's a lot of nectar in there. Hyssop, loaded with nectar. All right, that's enough of that. I'm going to move on. Question number six. Get hyssop. Question number six, moving right along. Dan from Pine City, New York. My question, I bought a Larabi's vaporizer two years ago and have been fairly successful treating my small apiary. I still have a half of a bag of oxalic acid that I purchased when I bought my vaporizer. Is there a best if used by or expiration date for the oxalic acid? I'm getting ready to treat my bees before the fall goldenrod nectar flow. Goldenrod is a main staple. Grows everywhere. Plant something better. All right. So, expiration date. Apibioxyl. So, oxalic uh, acid, solid form. Does it spoil? Yeah, apparently it does. Shelf life on that stuff, five years. So, good news for Dan. He's in the five-year zone. So I wouldn't buy a bunch of it way ahead of time. But here's the other thing. How do you make it last longer? What damages the oxalic acid? Store in cool, dry place. That's pretty much the same guidance for almost everything. Store in cool, dry place. Protect from heat. And it also is uh, capable of taking on moisture. And here's the thing. I bought those apobioxyl bags. And I used them in the instant vap. Which is fantastic, by the way. And it also comes from Laura Bees. Um, but here's the thing. That stuff is too dry. 
Okay, so it was so dry that when you put the pick up the metered dose cylinder that you're supposed to put into your instant vape, uh, when you put it in, it just falls out because it's so dry. But here's the good news, it's hygroscopic. So you can create a higher humidity environment and then it will eventually start to clump a little bit. But that moisture can potentially degrade it. So you've got five years on the outside. So here's the thing. I just recommend for the backyard beekeeper, you don't stockpile it. So wherever you're getting your oxalic acid, you know, get a couple years worth and then have it on the shelf and use it up and then get a fresh dose. That's what I recommend. And uh, the stuff that's left over, if you think it might not, because it's, you know, if you have a bunch left over, like maybe you bought a whole bunch of wood bleach when it first came out and you found out that you could do oxalic acid and everybody told you just use wood bleach. It's the same as everything else. Uh, okay, illegal. But anyway, let's say you have a bunch of it. I found out I was using pie plates, Pyrex pie plates, and uh, I had it on my cascading water system for the bees. But the water that was coming from the well and going through that turned all those plates really rusty. Do you know what I did? I took the oxalic acid, the older stuff, and I put it into a bin and then I put the pie plates in there. You would not believe how clean they are, how it dissolved the rust away. That stuff, it's almost like you could use it like a bleach or something. It's that good. I don't recommend you waste your apoboxyl that way because it's expensive. And I really wish the price would come down on that. So anyway, it has a shelf life. Take care of it. Get a couple years worth and buy it fresh whenever it's cheap. When somebody runs a sale or something, get it then. Keep it stored. Out of sunlight too. Sunlight, ultraviolet light degrades it. You wouldn't know. It's still going to perform the same way when you put it in your sublimator, right? Your vaporizer. So you won't know that it's degraded. It's not delivering a quality dose of OA to your bees. It breaks down into other things. Okay, so let's keep it fresh, people. Question number seven from Rich from East Freedom, Pennsylvania. That's a good name, East Freedom. It says, here I grafted my own queens and uh, now I have six nukes that I want to try to overwinter. I'm not sure exactly how I want to do it. Maybe in doubles, five over five, or two nukes side by side in a single deep. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm focused on nukes right now. Nucleus hives, five frames deep. All the levels are deeps. They do so well. The more people that I talk to that use them have great results. So wintering them over, I've done that before several times now. And uh, I was actually slow, not ashamed to admit it. I did not use nukes, didn't care about them for years. I'm talking like 15 years of beekeeping. I didn't use nukes, even though a lot of people say, hey, you need to use nukes. I would get swarms and things and put them straight in an eight frame deep box, or I'd put them in a 10 frame deep box right off the bat and just let them build up. What I've learned and I've said over and over again, so it's worth repeating. Why? Because the information is really good. Five frame deep nuke boxes are out standing. And uh, we were just talking about this last night. I'm building my own design for these nuke boxes because I want them to have things that most nuke boxes don't have. I only use wood. I'm not going to play with plastic or I do have polystyrene ones. I've not even tested them. They're sitting on the shelf. They've been on the shelf all year. 
So I'm making modifications and that's because when I put a small swarm in and I put them in the five frame nuke, they build so fast, I put the second deck on it and uh, now I have a 10 frame deep Langstroth, but it's vertical, see? Two deeps, five frames. So it's a 10 frame deep Langstroth volume wise, but they're straight over the others. So this rising column, this narrow, tall column seems to do extremely well. And so I go three high. Here's what I find out. Uh, they manage the space so well. I think it economizes their resources for some reason. Uh, they're controlling the climate just right. And they're building out comb better in those configurations than in anything else. And uh, here's how I winter them. I did not insulate the sides. I did not insulate the bottom. I put a two inch rigid polystyrene cap on them. Now what I'm changing, I did this on some of them, but I'm going to do it on all of them this year. They have migratory covers on them and that's okay. But guess what I put under the migratory covers now? I put reflect text double bubble right on top of the top nucleus box. And then I put the migratory cover on top of that. Not the first to do it. A lot of people have been doing it for a long time. I'm just a little slow in the uptake. I get it. So that little piece of double bubble serves as a gasket underneath your migratory cover. And there's no top venting, just like all my other hives. There are no upper entrances, just like all my other hives. And these colonies build out and do extremely well. Over the top of that, I have that two inch rigid foam board insulation, the pink panther stuff, whatever you call it. And uh, that's all. That's what I do for wintering. Now, they're all standalone. They're like isolated towers. But Rich wants to know, would I put them side by side? That's the problem. My caps, those insulated caps on them because I'm creating a heat capsule up there. So there's never condensation that drips down onto the bees. Could you insulate the sides? You sure could. In fact, if it was rigid foam board insulation like we have, if you used a shipping strap and, and you had three high or something like that, and uh, or you put two of them together or three of them together, and then you put that rigid foam board on the outside, use shipping straps to hold it all together, that would give rigidity to them. So it would shelter them from the wind and things like that. I'm just thinking out loud on that. It's not for me. That's not what I personally would do. I'm saying you can do it. And a lot of people put this rigid insulation board. I'm a fan of it. You put that on the back, the sides, the top, whatever insulation you do, the top needs to be the most insulated. Here's what you do not want to happen. And I hope you clearly understand this part. Insulate the top the dew point that's going to occur inside the hive in wintertime on the interior wall needs to occur below the cluster of your bees. I've seen people put insulation really well around the sides, the back, and the front of their hives. And then I've watched those same people put a standard inner cover on and a standard telescoping cover on that. So what they just did was insulated all the sidewalls, good. But then they left the top uninsulated, bad. The reason that's bad is because that's where condensation is gonna form because now we have a cold outside interior surface interface where it's gonna be colder than the sidewalls. Where's the dew point going to occur? On that inner cover directly over your bees and condensation is gonna drip down onto your bees. 
If you insulate nothing else, insulate your inner cover and your outer cover on all hives. Doesn't matter what the configuration is. Then, if you want to go the extra yard, do the sidewalls and stuff. I haven't needed to do that. And some people say, well, but I want my bees to be really awesome in spring. My bees are as populated as they could possibly be when spring comes. If there's some way to get them to do more than they currently do, I don't want anything to do with that colony because there's too many bees. Now this could be environmental. This could be the fact that there's great forage in early spring here where I live. There could be a lot of factors that contribute to that. But all I'm insulating is the cover, outer cover. And then of course I should mention that uh, this year I'm also using the Apame Hive because there are a lot of Apame enthusiasts that want to make sure that I mention that. So they have that seven frame nucleus hive, which I think is fantastic. It's super insulated. And now this year, I didn't do it last winter. I'm doing it this winter, the Apame Hives. There's the inner cover that has a very well-designed feeder in it. But all of the Apame Hives have venting through the top that turned out to be detrimental for my colonies last year. So this year, what am I going to put over those feeders under the Apame outer cover? Double bubble, a single layer. I'm going to stop that airflow up there. The bees have done a good job of filling up all those cracks with propolis. They've done a fantastic job. They don't want vents up there. I'm just going to give them a little extra boost because now what's happening is the sidewalls of the Apame hive are better insulated than the top because of this venting. So I'm going to eliminate the venting, add another layer double bubble. I'm going to increase the insulation on top. And now again, the dew point will occur on the interior sidewall where the bees can use that much needed moisture, by the way. It's just not going to be high up or put the bees in jeopardy when it thaws and drips down on them. Enough of that, but I'm going to link also with question number seven. Uh, there's a page on my website that takes you to the drawings, my current concepts. And I want to thank Ross Millard for formalizing my concept drawings, which were hand sketches. So he took those and he turned them into formal drawings with all the great details and specs and references and stuff like that. So if you want to see what my ideal nucleus hive looks like, you can go look at those there, follow the link. How much do they cost you? Nothing. They're free. All of my hive prints are free to use. You can't take them and recycle them and put your own name on them. That would get you bad karma. All of your hyssop will die if you take somebody's intellectual property and use it and claim it as your own. All right, moving on. Question number eight. Ashley from Whitechurch, Hampshire, United Kingdom. I might have said that wrong. The United Kingdom. Okay. I have a flow hive too. I'm seeing many spots of mold on the inspection tray. I have opened the vent section at the rear. Is there anything else I could do? The hive is situated under some trees, but does get the sun from east to west through the day, be it in some shade. Okay, so here's the thing for Ashley. The trays, any of the hives that have removable trays underneath of them. There's a screen above, removable tray. There's a back uh, door that you can take off, that you can pull the tray out to do your inspections and stuff. So this is the tray we're talking about. Mold can develop in the tray. Why? Well, because the bees don't have access to it. They can't keep it clean. 
So for those who have not just flow hives, but any hive configuration that's got a screen bottom board with a removable tray. And this includes the core flute or the flexible plastic material that looks like plastic uh, cardboard. If you're pulling those out, you're gonna notice they start to get black mold on them. So here's what I do. And this was the cover image for today. See these tablets? That is uh, chlorine for swimming pools. So this is a really old, everything is worn off of it. This is an old jar that I've had forever, uh, for 20 plus years anyway, and I'm still, they last a long time. Uh, because when you have like a blow up pool or something and you're on a well, as we are, you have to keep algae and stuff out of it. So you put this chlorinated stuff in it. And uh, this stuff, I made a note, it's 84% chlorine. And one of those tablets lasts an entire week. Why do I bring that up? What does that have to do with these trays underneath your beehive? What it has to do with it is I always recommend that you don't own just one of those trays. I recommend that you have at least one spare for every hive that's got a tray underneath of it. That way, when you go out to inspect your hives, and there's a reason for this, you don't have the time to take it out, go clean it, soak it in chlorine bleach or something like that, and then bring it back later. And the reason for that is you've got a screen underneath your hive. When you have that open screen underneath your hive, and I know that there are some people, so I know I'm gonna hear from them right away that they have open screen bottom boards and nothing under them, and they leave it that way year round, summer, winter, everything else, and that's fine. You can do whatever you wanna do. I'm just giving you the logic behind what I'm doing. So when you bring that uh, tray up there, uh, when you're pulling one out, put the clean one in right away. And then you mark the date in your log that you're keeping. I know you're keeping a log of all your beehives and everything you're doing. You pull that tray out and now we get to examine the detritus in the tray. What I have are, there's a company in the United States called Welch's, they make grape juice. And I have friends who sell grape juice to Welch's to make it. And then they have these 50 gallon plastic drums. So these drums are dirt cheap and the reason is, these uh, processing centers, so all these food processing centers have 55 gallon drums that guess what? They have to pay to get rid of. So if you're living anywhere near someplace that uses these food grade materials and they're getting rid of these big food grade plastic drums, they're 50 cents a piece here at Welch's. 50 cents for a 50 I don't know if they're 55s, 50, 55, it doesn't matter. You get those drums, cut them in half. Get your saw out, saw that drum right in half. Now we have two vats that are plastic that you set outside. And I put um, well water in them. And then what do I put in the well water? These, why? Because now you're not gonna have mosquito larvae or anything else developing in that water and it's water that you can still water your plants with and everything else. Guess what else you can do? You put those slow release tablets in there and then you take your trays and anything out of your beehive that you want to run through a cleansing cycle like that. So you just chlorinate it. Bees do not care. Once that's rinsed off and dried out again, even though it smells like it came out of a swimming pool, uh, you put that out, the bees will go right on it again. So with trays, they can't access it anyway, but it's going to sanitize the tray. You just give it a soak, scrape it out, Put it on your stack or your shelf or wherever you're keeping your stuff for the next time you go out to pull that tray. How often should you be pulling those trays? I say weekly during the summertime. You want to know what's going on. You want to know what's in them. You want to know if you've got varroa destructor mites and things like that. 
That's how you sanitize them. Guess what else you can sanitize that way? All of your drinkers and feeders and things like that that you're giving to your birds. You can dip bird feeders in them. You can, they're sanitizing. So this is just a great resource to use and it's for swimming pools. So it's for your kids to swim in. Certainly it's good enough to wash and it's got some utility aspect. That's what I'm doing. You can get it from any pool supply. You can get them from, you know, probably Walmart, wherever. Just look for uh, chlorine tabs for swimming pools. That's it. They work. Fantastic. So that's what I do. Soak them. But here's the part of that. You know, the bees can't keep it clean. It's got the black mold starting. Soak it, bleach it, put it back in. You don't want to go through all that trouble. It makes up a 10% bleach solution. Put it in a spray bottle, mark it for bleach so you don't use it on anything else. Wear clothes you don't care about and spritz away and just let it dwell, dry, and evaporate. And it's going to kill that uh, mold also. So there's a lot of ways to approach it. But I like the dip tank method and I like having that water out there. Moving on. Like I don't even know the name of this. It just says for pop-up pools. And it's a sanitized, you know, it's chlorine. All right, moving on. Question number nine comes from David from Blenheim, New York. Question is regarding the wax capping from the honey extraction and the cleanup procedure. I did my first honey extraction and now I have a whole bunch of wax cappings that I let drain off most of the honey. Now I have a big sticky mess. Mm -hmm, it's true. With lots of honey on them, I don't want to waste the honey that was on the cappings. So I put it all on trays and put it outside for the bees to work cleaning it all up, which seems to be working okay. Although the wasps are finding it, it also, and uh, there's some fighting going on between the honeybees themselves and the wasps. So there are a few dead bees starting to pile up. I also put the extractor outside for the bees to clean up, but that did not turn out too good because the bees got stuck on the sides of the extractor and stuck in the honey. So I turned it on its side and I drained it into a pail. Now I have a pail of honey, a few dead bees in it. I just want to throw it away. I like to give the honey back. Please explain the cleanup procedure. Okay, all these things are challenges, especially for new beekeepers too. You have these uncapping tanks. One of the uncapping tanks I recommend for backyard beekeepers comes from Pierce Manufacturing. They're the ones that make those hot uncapping knives. They make a really good uncapping tank. So here's what you do. Yeah, you've got a filter in there. If you've got a filter bag or something and you had your uncapping done and you get the honey off of it first. So let the honey drain out. You want to bring your wax cappings and the honey that's still in it up to about 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Let it dwell at that. Have your screen underneath so now it's nothing but honey dripping out. Collect that honey. After that's done. By the way, there's a lot of ways to do this. There's a lot of beekeepers that have different methods. I'm just sharing right now what uh, I've discovered works best because I used to try to do exactly what's being described here. And that's let the bees clean it up. But bees getting on open surface honey tends to, you know, bog them down and they can die in it. So now we've got bees in our wax cappings. So I'm going to suggest that we avoid that. And I'm going to suggest that you lay out your garden hose in your backyard and uh, you spray it all down. Wax cappings, depending on how big your collection of wax cappings is. Uh, if they're in that bag that comes from Pierce, there's a lot of, some people use paint filter bags and things like that. I've never tried that. I've heard about it. Uh, but the Pierce company sells this big, it's a heavy duty 
200 micron bag. So anyway, you put your wax cappings in that and run cold water through it. Or you can dunk it in cold water. And uh, you rinse it all off. Get all the honey out of it. And then you set that out. You can use that same bag. You can hang that out on your clothesline or whatever and let it air dry. Uh, any residual honey and stuff that's on there that collects on the bag, bees will collect on that bag because they can get their footing. They won't drown and they can lick it through the holes. But it's you've already rinsed it, so you've washed most of the honey out. And then um, you've got clean wax cappings now that now you can dry out and store until you're ready to melt that down and use it for candles or waxing your frames or whatever it is you want to use really good beeswax for. It's a great way to do that. There's going to be some propolis probably in there too. That's what gives beeswax that beautiful color. That's what gives beeswax its aroma. All of that is coming from the propolis that's blended in. So, and the wax capping sets your best wax, right? So the same thing with the uncapping tank. Here's what I like to do. And this is also why when I see somebody get a brand new uncapping tank and it's a nice tall one, please put that thing on wheels. And here's why. Because, uh, you know, they're electric motors and things like that. So you put them on wheels and then when it comes time to clean it up, you wheel it outside of your processing garage usually for a backyard beekeeper it's on your porch or something you can wheel that right out into the yard open up the honey gate and hose the whole thing out with cold water now you leave it there because after you've hosed it out there's still some residual uh, honey in some of the crooks and crannies in there and uh, bees will come and clean that up for you only now it's not wall-to-wall -wall, uh, sticky honey on the surface which if it's like that when you put it out just as described your bees are going to stick to it and you're going to find little dead bees in the morning stuck around the corners and things like that. So I've heard, I don't know that it actually has ever happened here. Okay, it happened here. So that's how I learned, wash it out with fresh water first, let the bees clean up the residue. Don't, don't just take your uncapping tank, don't just take your extraction system out and set it out and expect the bees to clean it from scratch because they get stuck in the honey and they just die. So rinse it. I know it's great to think that we would like to use that honey and feed it right back to them. But uh, the honey that drips through your uncapping tank, collect that. That's good for people. I mean, why get rid of it? And uh, the rest of it, I would just rinse it. I wouldn't even try to feed it to the bees. So just my thoughts on that. And that bag, as I said, gives them something to cling to that they can lick some of the light sugar syrup that's still left there. Not sugar syrup, but your honey that's left over after rinsing it and uh, just let them clean that up. That's my advice for that. Question number 10 comes from James. Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. What cameras do you use for the surveillance of your hives? Are there any tips you can offer? So for James, yes, I love my cameras. I'm out of control on it. I'm at the point now where almost every Every three hives has its own camera. So it's not a marketing thing, but it, it's gonna kind of turn into a marketing thing because I've been using these Arlo cameras for years. And I'm holding that up because when do I buy them? I buy them when they're having their Thanksgiving sales and stuff. Whenever they have Black Friday or something like that, this is the kind of thing. When these are 50% off for a day, I'm buying them. So here's the thing, they're wireless cameras. This is the Arlo Pro 
4 series, right? They're 2K video cameras. I don't care so much about that high resolution stuff. Let me tell you what they do that's really good though. They have night vision. So when I want to see what kind of a predator comes up and is feeding on my bees at night, like skunks, I use these cameras. And I recently realized I had an advantage here with the Arlo Pro 4s. These are not perfect cameras. You better have a fast internet system if you want to get your alerts in time. The good thing about it, I've had the Arlo 3s and just multi-generations through the years, right? The Pro 4 came out with something I thought I did not care about and didn't want. And that is they have a white spotlight on them. So since I'm trying to see what the animals are doing, I like the infrared light. So which for me and you just looks like a black and white video sequence. And 2K is kind of cool. It has some functions in it where it will track and zoom in on movement. Don't use it. It's garbage. It's digital zoom, which means the resolution is terrible. I just leave it as a full frame setup. I want the wide field of view and I want to see everything that moves around in that area. You control the sensitivity of the trigger too, so you're not getting alerts all the time. If you've got a camera positioned somewhere that you just want to check in on, you can pick up your cell phone, go to your Arlo system and look at that camera and see exactly what's going on. Or you can get the alerts when there's movement there. It also lets you know what the movement is. It'll say animal. It'll say person. I also have the Arlo doorbell, which is where like the UPS truck driver, he ding dong ditches me all the time and hits the button and just drives away. I know that's not helpful. So here's the thing. I'm going to talk to you about how it helped me out with a recent uh, issue I was having with a super stunt skunk, right? I had a skunk that was actually getting up on its hind feet and jumping at the landing board. In other words, the landing board was 18 and a half inches off the ground. So the skunk was getting up on its tiptoes and hopping and hitting that. Now I have audible alarm systems, right? So I've got these uh, solar powered 100 plus dB alarms that only come on at night, which is great because that's when the skunks come around. So, but I like to learn new things and I want to see new behaviors because here's the thing, that skunk was eating a lot of uh, honeybees, right? So I thought, wow, you know, the honeybees can't see the skunk. That's why they end up on the ground. That's why the skunk rolls them around with its feet. And then the skunk eats the bees that are in the grass. And the bees are defenseless because they can't see. Bees don't fly at night. They just don't do well. They get grounded. And then that's why... If you're one of these people that thinks it'd probably be a great idea on a super hot night to go out there and attend to your beehives, uh, bees don't see well, so they don't fly. And you might think that's a good idea until you realize that there's hundreds of them climbing up your ankles. So moving on, I wanted to get the skunk back and I wanted to get a good video, you know, to share with you. So I thought, wait, these things have white spotlights on them. What if I set up two cameras in a crisscross and when this skunk, this gymnastic skunk, shows up to jump up and tap that landing board, what if white lights come on? See where I'm headed? And then the bees, the guard bees that are coming out trying to defend their hive are no longer in the dark. Now they see the skunk and they fly it and now they can start stinging the skunk and they can give them a little bit of what for, right? That'd be a sweet video. The skunk gets calibrated, it's no longer eating your bees, and these white lights came on so you saw the whole thing in living color. So, did it work?
Yes. The white lights came on when the skunk came to do its tap dance on the beehive landing board. The letdown was the skunk didn't like the spotlight, so the minute they came on, it ran away. So we did not get to see the honeybees exact vengeance on the skunk. So that's one of the things I like about the Arlo 4. I realize that's uh, a long way around the barn on that, but uh, they have white lights on if you want them to come on. So if you want to know if something's going on in your yard at the moment it's happening, set the spotlights on and those lights come on. And that lets you know because there's a slight delay. The lights come on, 30 seconds later, you get an alert on your phone. So I realized I just told some fast-moving thief. So if the skunks are watching right now, all right, you have 30 seconds to do what you need to do before you're going to find me out there insulting you. So that's how they work. And here's what I like about it. You can have as many of them as you want. I have a subscription to the Arlo company which means I can have as many Arlo Pro 4s on my system as I want. I've got the older cameras too. So whenever you find a deal on them, get them. I buy these kits. This particular one came in a pack of three and uh, they might have something better than this by now. I don't know. So if you get like last year's model, you'll save a lot of money on it. The batteries last a while. They have magnetic mounts. Anyway, those are the ones I like. I have the Blink camera systems too, which uh, actually focus on things closer than the Arlo's do. Less satisfied with the Blink cameras. So I like Arlo Pro 4, and if the spotlights come on, scares away wildlife. So that works. In fact, maybe at the end of today's video, I'll add on some of the Arlo video sequences so you can see animals being scared away by my alarm system, and uh, you can see what kind of night vision they have. Question number 11. This is the last question of the day, and it comes from Linda. Linda lives in Maryland. I have all medium frames. I would love to build horizontal hives to save my back. If I were to put insulation in the bottom of the box, would that work to protect in winter in addition to insulation on the top? What's the science behind using deep frames? So those are a lot of different things. Let me address the first one. As I get older, I realize... I'm old and getting older day by day. What kind of hive am I looking at for my future? Horizontal hives. They are the easiest to work with beehives, period. Now, you're lifting frames. Save your back. Not only that, you decide how high that horizontal hive is. I have no skunks trying to feed on the bees in my horizontal hives. Why? Because they're too high off the ground. So, predator issues. Stormproof. My horizontal hives are so heavy that we've had 60 mile an hour winds in the middle of winter time and they don't budge. They don't move at all. So they're kind of heavy duty. You can build a horizontal hive as big and heavy and stout and thick and insulated as you want it to be. So mine are all two by material. And the only thing I'm just going to share this, uh, the idea about insulating the bottom. If you made it out of thick stock, good wood and stuff like that, I don't think that's necessary. Couldn't hurt but it's not necessary, but I want you to follow the same principle that I described earlier. Your most insulated part of the hive, any hive, any hive configuration should be the top. Your second consideration would be the sides and the sides should not be more insulated than the top for the reason I described before. We don't want condensation to form above the cluster. Okay, the bottom of the hive, in my opinion, 
should have some screen there. Now, underneath the screen, there should be some kind of removable tray, which we already talked about too, and you can use cafeteria trays and things like that. They're very inexpensive. Below the tray, I would recommend that you have a solid bottom board. So even with the tray out, it's still an enclosed space, but you benefit from the fact that there's a screen there. If any condensation forms on the bottom of that hive, and if you've got an entrance that goes through the sidewall, which a lot of horizontal hives have, in other words, the entrance is not on the bottom. So if condensation forms inside, it needs to go through the screen, collect in trays, and be away from the bees. And then that's enclosed, so we don't have free-flowing air through there, so you don't have, so you have an environment that's under the control of your bees. That's what I'm after. So the other part of this is uh, the deep frames. A lot of people use nothing but mediums. Okay, so when we're now we're back to Langstroth size hives, right? Langstroth verticals, not the horizontal. So if you tack, stack double deeps, right? That's the equivalent of three mediums. So a lot of people use all medium hives, all medium equipment, and that's because they don't wanna mix up their gear. But you'll also hear people say because they can't lift the deep boxes. But the discussion here should be that deep bottom box doesn't get lifted anyway. That's your brood box. You're not dealing with honey supers. So your bottom box is not what you're lifting. So when you get to your bottom box, which is your brood box, you would be pulling individual frames anyway, normally. Unless you're doing something to swap your bottom board configuration. But how did they arrive at that? We're dealing with this because a man named Dr. Lorenzo Langstroth from Amherst developed frames that were that deep that form our standard deep Langstroth box. The way he arrived at how high to make his frames was based on his observations of the normal size of a brood for honeybees. So in other words, the brood would kind of fit into a single deep box. Now, some people have Layens hives, which are taller than the Langstroth frames, and you'll see brood go up those pretty good. But the brood moves kind of like a, like a setting moon in super slow motion. The brood stays kind of like a three-dimensional basketball through several frames, but it collectively moves up and down, right? And this is where... Dr. Langstroth observed that that would be the height and therefore the size of his frames, which is the most widely adopted frame size in the world for industry. So here's the thing. Now when we do multiple, you know, medium supers, you end up with a joint because now we have shallow frames, medium sized frames. The brood almost guarantees that even when it's in its lowest point in the hive, that now it's spread across two frames. It's into the second medium. So when you're pulling the second to the bottom box and you give that twist and you break it away, you've actually divided the brood. So this is why I always go for all of my hives with at least the deep frames for the first box. After that, you can do a double deep if you've got the strength to do it. You can use medium boxes beyond that single deep bottom box. And uh, some people use what's called single brood management. And that information gets cycled back to me a lot from those who do commercial scale beekeeping. 
So what they do is they're putting a queen excluder on top of their single deep, and then everything above that becomes a honey super. So, but they find that the brood in that is every bit as big as a brood in other colonies that have double brood box management. It's just a matter of where the brood collectively moves up and down through two boxes now. So I had a really good uh, conversation with Steve Rapasky. If you don't know who that is, he is one of the people that authored, well, he did author this book called Swarm Essentials. So he is a single brood management guy, and uh, there are a lot of people that are doing that. So they find that, that the brood is well managed in a single deep box, and then everything above that is a super. So that's how they arrived at the deep frame for that brood bottom box, and the bottom box of every hive under my management is always going to be a deep. And that includes my nucleus hives, which are all deeps, technically. They're just five frames wide. So those deep frames are very good for the bees, and you have less disruption in the brood when you manage that way. So that is that for today. So we're in the fluff section. Nectar flow has started. So if you're in the northeastern United States, you should be ready to super everything because the goldenrod is a very high quality right now. And the other plant of the week thing here, number two, have nucleus hives on standby. So if you don't have nukes already, get a few. They really become very good insurance policies. If you suddenly look at one of your hives that you did not expand on time, and you see that they're building queen cells, this is your chance. If you have a new candy, you can pull the frame with the queen on it and some brood, and you can put her in your nucleus hive as an insurance policy and then you let them finish out developing those late season queens. And when they fail, if they fail, you migrate those right back. Now I've done that in the past. And the colony that replaced its queen, instead of swarming, of course they kept their numbers. I pulled some frames and I made a nuke from it late in the year. Guess what? Survived winter with the configuration that it described. So it's very interesting. Also, we talked about honey extractors, uncapping equipment, things like that. If you're in the Northeastern United States, our nectar flow is ahead of us. If you're in the state of Pennsylvania, you've got a big nectar flow, probably the biggest one of the year ahead of us. It's a great opportunity. Sunday's gonna be a great day, but it's raining Saturday. Why not clean up all your gear on Saturday? Use rainwater to wash it out if you want to. But get your extraction gear already organized, your extraction site set up and cleaned and drop cloth, you know, the plastic drop cloth, whatever you want to do to keep your area clean and tidy and just be ready. Now, here's my last thing that I'm recommending that people have. I've talked to people that uh, seem to get impacted by that one mean guard bee. You go out to your apiary, you haven't done a darn thing. You've got your cup of tea or coffee or whatever it is that you drink and you're looking at your bees and a bee flies up. I don't know, stings you in the ear. I don't know, might sting you under, you know, the chin there. I don't know, but some of these bees, it's usually just one or two. They come after you. They follow you everywhere. They're probably not even from the hive that you're standing in front of. Have a butterfly net. I know there's guys out there. I'm not carrying any butterfly net around. You should have a butterfly net. Give it to your grandkids in. When there's a guard bee that comes out that's unreasonable, catch it in the butterfly net and ground it the whole time you're out there, and you'll find out that was just one or two bees that was following you everywhere. So... Ground those bees. What you do with them is completely up to you. When you're done, you can turn her loose again and let her be angry about it. 
So that's it for today. I want to thank you for watching. Thank you for being here. Please subscribe if you're not a subscriber already. And uh, if you have a YouTube channel, that's how you get to give a thumbs up on the videos that you like, subscribe, create playlists and things like that. So if you don't have a YouTube channel, I highly recommend that you get one just for that reason alone so you can have more interaction with your favorite YouTube channels and support them with your likes, with your, you know, subscriptions, whatever you want to do. So that's it. Plan your garden and just be ready for everything that's coming ahead. We'll see you again next Friday. Thanks for watching. Thank you.